pockets. So there you go. Don't have a cell phone in your pocket when you're preaching. Lesson number one. Actually, you know, I'm in real trouble tonight. One of the elders slipped me this book, How to Prepare Bible Messages. <laughs> but it's too late. I did read the part of it. It said, we must avoid any tendency to drag and eliminate all non-essentials from the introduction, including humorous anecdotes and unnecessary apologies. And I've already apologized for the cell phone and had a real good story. I was going to tell you, I'll have to drop it now. And I tell you. But one thing about you young preachers, it is a good book and read it, but it is important to be who you are. Don't try and preach like anybody else. I know when I started preaching, I tried to be Billy Graham for about a couple of messages and then realized that we have to be who we are. Who I am is a cheerful guy who likes to tell occasional stories. And that's okay, as long as you don't drag them out. So I do want to break both rules. I want to apologize for forgetting your names. I only come once a year and I go, oh, I've forgotten your name. Uh, But part of the problem is, (laughs) you know, I'm not as young as I used to be. I do forget things. It's like the pastor who did some pastoral visits in an old folks' home. And he thought he'd help them out, so he goes to this uh, lady in the retirement home and he said, Hello, dear, do you know who I am? And she said, No, but if you go to the desk, they'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) So despite what my brother said, it is important to start our evening service with a little smile. but I generally agree with all he said. And I should explain, by the way, to let Malcolm off the hook, the book was to pass on to somebody else. <laughs> I, I think. But I'm, I think he's hoping I'll read it before I come back in three weeks' time. Anyway, let's get down to Philippians 2. The, the theme tonight is adjusting our attitude. Very important. It's a, this is a fantastic chapter. Very important chapter. I can't do it justice. It's such a rich, rich chapter. In fact, let me tell you, for many years I avoided Philippians 2 and I did the rest of the book because I thought, I cannot do this chapter justice. But that's no reason to not talk about it. So Philippians 2, I have headings. I am breaking the chapter down as I like to do into sections. The opening five verses is about our attitude. And that's what we need to adjust. But it's like a sandwich, this chapter. It's got, got the bread each side and the meat is in the middle because in the middle it's about the Lord Jesus. Six to eight is about Christ's agony and nine to eleven is God's acclaim. And Christ's agony for us and God's acclaim of his work, that's the core, the meat of the chapter. But look how the sandwich is finished. It's our attitude and our actions, each side of it. We adjust our attitude to go into action, but we're inspired by the Lord Jesus. And so those are the sections. Our attitude in the first five verses, Christ's agony, 6 to 8, God's acclaim, 9 through 11, and then that incredibly important, longish section about putting all this into practice. Because the two major themes in this chapter, especially in the opening verses of Philippians 2, are our attitude, that's our mindset, what's going on in our heads, and of course the need to maintain unity amongst Christian believers. Very important topics. So we'll get right into them. No more funny stories or apologies. Here we go. 
But do remember this. Never forget when you're reading this book that Paul writes from that difficult situation in prison. I think if we forget that, some of the inspiration is gone because it is astounding. I mean, you've got to be thinking human terms. Paul's chained to a soldier. He's separated from his friends. Poor prison food. I had a wonderful lunch. My host took me to Red Lobster. Man, what a great lunch. Thinking what Paul would have given for a piece of fish like this. Prison food. Little freedom of movement. I mean, these are very difficult conditions. And yet he asks the Philippians in the second verse of the chapter, he said, you make my joy complete. Make his joy complete? I mean, that's astounding. How on earth could anyone's joy be complete in such difficult situation? But you see where, where priorities uh, for Paul were? He said, it's easy. It's not difficult to make my joy complete. You be like-minded. You maintain unity between yourselves. You be in one spirit. You be one in purpose. And my joy will be complete. Uh, and that shows how important unity is. I mean, that's the thing that Paul most wanted. It's so important, Paul said, being united as believers, that that would fill me with joy. So here we have it again. Let's be inspired by this. Far from complaining, Paul's attitude was to find joy, not just in his own spiritual blessings, so he certainly did that, but in the spiritual blessing of others. And that's what he begins to talk about right at the beginning. Verse 1, Paul lists the blessings believers have in Christ. And I think this is a secret of his, his joy. I mean, he's already listed in verse 1 some of the blessings we know. The blessing, look at these blessings. I mean, don't just gloss over these things. Being united with Christ. You're comforted by his love. You, you have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. You're experiencing God's tender compassion. What blessings. And, and it's really because Paul shared these blessings with all believers that he felt, really, all I need to add to this fantastic list of blessings is a changing attitude on your part. Because when you're united with Christ and you're comforted by his love and you have fellowship with the Holy Spirit and you're experiencing God's tender compassion, who's going to complain? What an incredible list of blessings. Uh, humanly speaking, you might think, what Paul, I mean, what Paul really needed, actually, if you think about what his needs were, he needed nutritious food, that would be a great start, some comfort, some freedom, some fellowship. You'd say, if Paul, if you, what, what he needs a nice break uh, by the sea, he could do it with a little trip down to Florida or something. But no, you see, Paul, the bottom line is Paul had the same attitude as Christ. And so he said, look, what you need to develop is the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ, of course, he develops that in, in some detail, but what he wanted to see in a practical way from them, mostly he wanted to see correct relationships between these believers. And that's very important. See, it makes that such an important thing 
Paul wanted it most, but, but listen, why it's really important. Why did Paul want it most? Why was it such an issue? Well, because it's the one thing that our Lord and Savior said would make our testimony viable. Because Jesus said in John thirteen thirty-five, he said, look, he said, this is how all men will know that you're my disciples, that you show love one to another. So our relationships, our unity, the way we show love to each other, it's something Jesus said is the key giveaway that you're my disciples. So this is why it's so important. Paul wanted it most because Jesus called for it. And it, because what the Lord knew and what we need to worry about, given the priority of the gospel that we talked about this morning, is that this unity, I call this unity like a smog that obscures the light of the gospel. There's a beautiful, strong light of the gospel, but it can be obscured, and this is one of the key ways it's obscured. And of course, what Paul was talking about wasn't just an aber. In fact, the Philippians were in better shape than most churches he wrote to. It's very little complaining about the condition of the church in Philippi, uh, because this competitive spirit was pretty common, and is pretty common in churches, and it's not new. In fact, think about this. On, on the very night of the Lord's betrayal, even on that night, in Luke 22, 24, the disciples, it said, got into what? A competitive discussion about who would be greatest. Imagine this, the, Lord, the Last Supper. Jesus is trying to tell them about how he's going to give his life. And what they're arguing about is, who's going to be the greatest? I mean, it's incredible, but it's human nature. And, and it's really because of the fundamental tendency we have to talk and think like that, and in dealing with those attitudes, that Paul makes a very clear argument. He's saying, look, look, you all share the same tremendous blessings in Christ. So, just show how different you are from the world by being what? By being unselfish, and thinking of others first, and being like-minded. Because that's not how the average... I mean, there's some nice people out there. There are some unselfish people, but the general way of the world is not thinking of others first, uh, uh, being unselfish in attitude. What, what generally happens is that people are concerned with, well, what revolves around themselves. I don't know whether you know much science, but uh, one of the great... Movement, uh, one of the great things in the history of science was what we call the Copernican Revolution. The Copernican Revolution was when Copernicus, and of course it gave the, 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 the Catholic Church that it was great trouble over this, realized through his observations that it wasn't everything going around the earth, the sun and all that. It was the earth and the planets going around the sun. Realized the center of our planetary system is the sun, and that was a a huge problem because people have always tended to misinterpret scripture when it comes to these physical and scientific matters and they did it then and they thought scripture taught the earth was the center somehow there's a misinterpretation of scripture but I thought about that and I thought you know some of us need spiritually what I could call a Copernican revolution and this cartoon here it explains Copernicus said well the earth and moon and the planets go around the sun, but Fred's theory, now Fred's theory was me. I'm the center. The earth, the moon, the sun, the lot goes around me. 
Now that is the kind of theory that we need to be liberated from. What Paul is saying here is, look, don't think everything revolves around you. And of course you can't know anything about Lord Jesus and never think like that. In this cartoon, this guy <laughs> is in the, in the business world and they say he's got a pre-Capernian attitude about himself. He believes he's the center of the universe. Are you amazed how many people behave like that? Not, not us believers, one would hope. There is only one center to the universe and that's the one for by whom and for whom it was made, our Lord Jesus Christ. But unity and unselfishness and being like-minded and thinking of us, this is a very, very important issue that we need to take seriously. But let me say this. You see, it's very easy to get things out of balance. Let me remind you that unity doesn't mean uniformity. Some of us want everyone to think just the way we think. Uh, we're not called to be cookie-cutter Christians all the same. It, that, we'd have a, uh, a rough assembly if, if everybody was like me or you're like you, and that's why I said for preachers you have to be who you are because individuality and diversity is part of what it is to be human. It's wonderful to have cookie-cookers like this that have some differences because God made you who you are. You're made as an individual, and one of the wonderful things about a body is that we have different giftedness and different abilities and different personalities, and all those things God can use, they're what it is to be human. And so don't think that unity means just got a total line exactly like I think because diversity differences is not disunity. This is a great place to come. It's a but a multicultural atmosphere. Some of us come from different parts of the world. We look different and, and we have lots of differences and that's nothing to do with unity because we're not called to give up our unique assignment that God's called us to or our style of doing things or our principles to have unity with us. In fact, for the sake of the gospel, I have unity with believers who think differently than me about how we should do church and stuff. Now, I don't have to give up what I believe are important principles to have unity with them, and that's very important. Uh, and, 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 and we should, should realize that, that differences in style, I'm not talking about principles, important principles. We don't say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe about a person of Christ and those things, but I'm talking about the, the way we do things, the style, the style of music, that the, the the traditions. All the things like style and tradition and, and um, giftedness uh, uh, can differ, but that's what helps us to be more effective. Uh, I think this plate of cookies looks a lot more fun than, that, than, than the other one. But th those are the things that give life and, and joy to a church. Such things are, uh, are not, I'm not talking about differences in principles and essential doctrines. You see, Harmony, and it's so much. Harmony is not always having to agree on the way we do everything. Uh, the joy of Christian unity is that we don't all sing the same note. Uh, what the joy, we blend beautifully together so that our lives are harmonious. You can't have harmony if we all sing the same note. It's a blending that's important. So, so don't think that what I'm saying is God wants a church full of clothes. We're all the same. Man, that would be a, a tough place to be. 
You see, uniformity where we all think alike is not healthy, it's not scriptural. And that kind of uniformity usually comes from outside pressure. That's what the cults have. That's what, what people that, that, that have a, a sort of doctrinaire leader have. Uh, no, no. I'm talking about the kind of unity that comes from an inner attitude of mind that Paul's talking about, an attitude where we have a mind like the Lord Jesus. It comes from an inner desire to act out in a loving and a cooperative way for the sake of the Lord and for the sake of the gospel. And if you put the gospel number one and what the Lord wants you to do number one, all these squabbling difficulties that can arise in churches, well, they'll disappear. Because the, the, the fact is, in our witness, what Jesus was really saying is to be effective, we all have to pull together. You know these guys aren't going to win the boat race if, if one's pulling one and time and the other's pulling another time. But because it's working together, it doesn't just win boat races. It's working together that wins souls for Christ. And that's what Paul's concern is, the effectiveness of the gospel. What unity means is that, is that as far as the essence of the gospel is concerned and, the, and our concern for its effectiveness, our primary concern is that we pull together for that reason. We yield to each other in the Holy Spirit and we stand united and we stand with hearts in tune. And I can't overemphasize this. It's... Um, well, what Jesus said is very important. He said, if you behave like that, in that united, unselfish, loving way, it, it, what you're actually portraying to the world is what the joy of heaven will be like. Because that, that's what it will be like in heaven. We'll all see things from God's point of view. And what people would see if we behave like the Lord calls us to do is that we work together in love, in consideration, United in heart because we recognize, well, we have to live, they'd say it's something out of this world. That's how they describe it. Well, that is, of course, out of this world. It's, it's the joy of heaven. But, of course, there are things that kill unity. All that's a wonderful idea. And what kills unity? Well, that's what the chapter spells out. What does Paul say in verse 3? He lists the stuff. So what kills this wonderful idea is, verse 3, Selfish ambition, vanity, conceit, lack of humility. Pretty devastating list. And it is easy. You can be spiritually ambitious or vain or thinking about your own reputation. Or, well, humility is so important. Uh, and when I looked at this list, I thought, you know, it's very interesting. That, that, you know, you think these are not like the real big sins, but, it, but it's interesting to notice that selfish ambition is listed as one of the 15 acts of the sinful nature in Galatians 5. You go to Galatians 5, how does a sinful nature behave? Well, it's included. I mean, most of the list has to do with sexual immorality. Two of them have to do with witchcraft. Two of them have to do with or the occult. Two are about drunkenness and orgies. Now, if I come to Boulevard and say, don't be sexually immoral and uh, don't dabble in witchcraft and don't get drunk and, and don't get involved in orgies, you say, hey, you don't need to tell us that we know. I mean, who as a Christian would even think of that kind of behavior? But let me tell you, those gross sins that, that 
clearly are recognizable as totally inappropriate for any believer, that's only half the list. And you all agree such gross sins have no place at all in the life of a, of a believer. But you see, then the other half of the list, more than half of the list, is about pride and selfish ambition and envy and rivalry. And we've got to take that just as seriously. See, because these are more hidden things. It's hard to, to know that someone's really being proud or, or they've got this ambition for themselves or they're really envious or, or they're, you know, they're jog- I've seen this. I swear, people are juggling for power as if being a deacon was anything other than being a servant. Uh, and you think, this is, this is a hidden problem. It's like an iceberg, you know. The real danger... Uh, of, of an iceberg and uh, the remaking the Titanic and it reminded me of this <laughs> imagine seeing that movie in 3D that's what they're going to produce <laughs> the, the real danger of that event or the real danger of any iceberg isn't, isn't that little bit that you can see it's that huge, huge amount that's hidden below the surface that's where the real that's what the problem is and that is the stuff we're talking about. Pride, selfish ambition, envy and rabbit hidden below the surface. And Paul's severe warning in Galatians 5 against these sins, these attitudes, attitudes that are hidden away in the mind, it's just as strong as his warning about behaviors that you'd say are obviously sinful, that you wouldn't even want to talk about. See, the bottom line here, and we need to get to the bottom line quickly, is is in verse 5. It's about being other-centered, not self-centered. It's about an attitude of mind, and that's where it all starts. And nobody knows what's going on in your mind. You could be sitting here looking real good tonight and really thinking, man, I hope he finishes on time. I've got to watch something on TV. I don't know what you're thinking. Who could tell what people are thinking? And that's what Paul's concerned about. He's saying, you've got to get right to the mind, the heart. And he's saying it's, it's hearts in tune, focused on the cross of Christ that, that he's getting to. And you remember this, you see, we're getting to the big passage now that we read every uh, so often on Sunday morning, the great passage about the personal work of Christ, verses 5 through 11. But that passage, that great passage about the personal work of Christ, it was written just to illustrate the mindset or attitude that should govern a person who professes to be a Christian. And that passage starts, hey, look, your attitude should be like Christ. Who? And it goes into describing what Christ did. And Paul gets on a roll, of course. He moves quickly from our attitude, having tried to correct it, into a portrayal of Christ as a great model for Christians to follow. And never forget, the Savior is not only our Savior, but is our example. And Paul starts by describing the most moving thing you could ever be moved by, and that's the agony of Christ when he died for us. And we come, this is, this is now one of the most profound passages in Scripture. And, and don't expect me to do a good job, because no preacher could ever find words to fully explain the magnitude of what Paul writes about right through to verse 11. I mean, these verses, these verses contrast the extremes of Christ's majesty and glory. Unbe- 
the king and sovereign lord in glory with the humiliation of life in this dark valley, everyday life on earth. And the contrast between a valley and a mountain is it's just incredible. Uh, the story that he tells of Christ leaving the eternal throne deity as God to be nailed in humiliation on a cross where he died an agonizing death. I mean, that's a stoop beyond comprehension. Can't imagine it. I mean, but a key point Paul is making as he describes it is that, that Christ, who's equal with God, he made a voluntary choice to take the place of subjection and loneliness. And the key part of the passage is it was Christ's willing choice to step down from that sublime height, the height of heaven. What is described as a glory he had with the Father before the world was to take a servant's role and humbly do the Father's will in a troubled and sin-cursed world. And Paul's saying, look, you have to think like Christ. Christ who relinquished his rightful position, who divested himself of his divine prerogatives, become a, a savior of sinners like us. And he's saying, look, everything about our salvation depended on Christ's attitude of willing submission. It was the Lord's ready cooperation with the Father's plan of salvation. It was the Lord's unselfish acceptance of the role that was required to make salvation of you and I possible uh, that Paul's talking about. Now let's be clear. We do need to pause and be clear about some theology here. Don't misread this passage as some have. Christ did not divest himself of his deity. He ever is and was and will be the eternal Son of God. He was ever the Son of the Father and as such a divine person. What it's talking about, Christ divested himself of his rights as God the Son. And he took on himself the role of a servant when he was made in the likeness of humanity. But don't misunderstand the passage. You see, he surrendered his face-to-face -face joyous fellowship with the Father and he chose a lonely path of abuse and misunderstanding and, and he chose a, a torturous death. But don't think Christ ever was less than God. And, and what Paul's describing in this passage is those downward steps of Christ. And he goes down and they're clearly set out in these verses 6 through 8. Wonderful, wonderful. Per I can't discuss them all, but just, just look at it. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant. He was made in human likeness. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death. He accepted the most painful and humiliating way to die, crucified on a cross. And the point that Paul's trying to make is, with what attitude did he... That is astounding, but with what attitude did he do it? Well, that's made clear in another scripture, Hebrews 12, 2, which also calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus, which is a sub-theme of today. He said, fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and had sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's a verse that talks about Christ's attitude. And it reminds us, you see, there was no grudging reluctance on the part of the Savior as he modeled for us 
what looking after the needs of others really is all about. In both attitude and in action, the Lord Jesus is just our superb example. And don't ever read this passage and forget that it's there as an example for how we should behave. It's not always appropriate Sunday morning to go into that because we're focused on Christ, his person and work. But, but I hope that, that this brief look at the majesty and humility of Christ will have a, a profound practical effect on us tonight because that was what Paul was after. I know it's beyond comprehension. I, I can't explain it. I think Charles Wesley did a wonderful thing when he wrote that famous hymn, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal die." mystery all the immortal so I can't explain it but there it is but it was done with an attitude you know the Lord Jesus I think one of the most important prayers in all of scripture in fact I would say that word nevertheless is, is arguably one of the most important words in the Bible when Jesus said nevertheless not my will but yours be done that's a word that brought us salvation and life and 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 of course, well, you know this. But, but remember the context. His humility, his obedience is described here, so we'll question our own humility, so we'll look at our own obedience. That's what Paul's after. Because one of the reasons Christ suffered, he suffered to save us from our sin, but 1 Peter 2.21 says, Christ suffered for you. Why? Leaving you an example that you should follow his steps and they were downward steps you know I think most Christians would say well I believe that with my mind but they don't seem to apply it in the heart by following his example and what Paul's calling for is for us to do exactly that so take the challenge seriously but it doesn't finish that how glad I am that 9 through 11 is about Christ's acclaim here we come. Watch out for these words in Philippians. This is the first of two therefores in Philippians 2. Very important point. Therefore, it says in verse 9, first of two therefores, God highly exalted him to the highest place. This is a dramatic confirmation of the biblical principle that the way up is down. Don't forget that. And of course, this the all verses nine through eleven. It's a wonderful fulfillment of prophecy. Remember Psalm one ten: The Lord Jehovah says to my Lord, "Sit at my right hand until until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet." You see, Christ's exaltation now as a man to the throne of God. Remember, eternally human, eternally divine. Christ's exaltation to a man on the throne of God is the Father's acclaim. It's the Father's recognition of his perfection, his perfect satisfaction with Christ's work. It's the recognition of Christ's equality with God. And the word Paul uses here, by the way, for exalted, is the same word Jesus used himself when he said, I, if I be lifted up, talking about the cross, I'll draw all people to myself. What, what it's saying, he who was lifted on the cross is the same one that by the Father was lifted up to glory and he was exalted back to heaven bearing a name at which every knee should bow 
the name Jesus. Never forget that all must eventually bow in submission to the one who was crucified and who bears the name Jesus. Now again, let me be careful. Some people seem to misread Scripture so easily. This does not imply universal salvation. I don't believe Scripture teaches universalism. Paul's not saying in this verse that everybody will get to heaven. What he's saying is that Jesus will be sovereign over all. All will one day acknowledge the one God placed at his right hand. They'll acknowledge Christ as sovereign king over the universe that he created. But scripture teaches only believers are reconciled to Christ. All people will be subject to him. But only believers are reconciled to Christ, and subjugation is one thing, reconciliation is another. Praise God if you're reconciled. You don't want to be subject in the same sense that he's talking about subjection here. And it's a wonderful blessing to bow now in recognition of his lordship, willingly, and so experience to the full the reconciliation that the cross brought about simple verse that you all know Romans 10 and 9 if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and do it willingly now of course if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe of course in your heart it's all about right down there believe in your heart that God raised him from dead you will be saved this is the gospel no, not you may be saved you could be saved let's hope you will be saved but I want you to notice, and let's get very quickly to this, how Paul ends this great chapter. We've got to finish our sandwich. We've got the meat there about the person of Christ, but he finishes a great chapter just where he started, talking about our attitude, and he says, hey, let's, this is a call to action. What he says at the end of it, look, this requires action on your part. And this is another therefore, another great therefore in verse 12. God's therefore was in verse 9. Our therefore is in verse 12. Therefore, where is it? Verse 12. Therefore, because of all this, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, don't misunderstand this verse. I'm sure you don't, really don't think that salvation can be worked for. You can't work out what's not already in, as is often said. You see, God works in, and we work out. Uh, so what Paul is simply saying is we're called to show the reality of our faith uh, so seriously that, that we work out what God has brought into our lives, but we do it with fear and trembling. So don't misunderstand. Again, I need to do some of the fundamentals as we go along. Paul's not talking about here about working for salvation. You see, working out is very, a di very different thing. And Scripture is absolutely clear that salvation is not by works, but by grace and through faith. And I'm sure you know Ephesians 2.9. You see, working our salvation out, what Paul's talking about is a lot of practical things. Uh, and, and Paul mentions from verse 14 onwards some of these practical things and, and, and he's, he starts the, the ball rolling in verse 14 and, and it's very practical now this is not a theoretical kind of chapter first thing he said and Vivian caused my attention to this verse more than once he says do everything without grumbling or arguing see where he's getting to again 
how practical Scripture is. And again, you know, don't misunderstand Scripture. It's saying don't grumble or argue, but it's not a call to keep quiet if things are wrong. I know people say, oh, well, we shouldn't grumble. I'll just let it go. If things need to be put right, they need to be put right. So you can't say, well, I won't mention anything, but this is clearly wrong. This passage is not a call to keep our mouths shut all the time. It's a call to always speak in a spirit of gratitude rather than complaining complaining all the time about things not being to our liking. Let me tell you something. I've discovered it's very hard to grumble when you're saying thank you. You can't say thanks and grumble at the same time. I saw this cartoon recently about someone's mission statement in the office, and he says, you have to admit it, mustn't grumble, it's not much of a mission statement. Well, it isn't much. You see, but Paul's saying, don't live like that. I've discovered one thing about guys that look like this. Chronic grumblers rarely take action to help the situation. I've been in many different assemblies over many years, and you do run into grumblers, but I always notice they never actually do anything to help, and they actually finish up harming rather than uh, helping the situation. Very, very important to, to be in there helping if there are things that need to be sorted out. There's Woodstock, letting Charlie Brown have an earful on the, on the mound. I don't know what's gone wrong with the baseball game, but Charlie Brown says, everyone in the stands is an expert. And you'll find that if you're in leadership, if you're an elder in leadership in Christian work, there's lots of experts out there in the stands who do nothing but grumble. And there are lots of examples in Scripture. I mean, Scripture is full of examples of people who grumbled instead of thanking God. You remember the Jews in the wilderness? They were always grumbling. Here were, you remember that the Lord provided manna for Israel. Great. They said, we've no food. The Lord sent this beautiful manna, and they soon started grumbling about it. And they forgot they'd been gloriously rescued. I mean, the Lord had brought them out of Egypt, and all the morning about is a food. <laughs> it's like my son, my my grandson's gone to university. He said, "What's it like?" And he was talking about what the food's like. Forget the whole big experience. But it didn't take long for them to start saying, "You know, God, can't you give us something better than this?" I don't know whether you can remember back. I saw a lovely example of not grumbling because you're thankful. Do you remember? Maybe it was two years ago when those Chilean miners were trapped underground. Remember that? And they were gloriously rescued. It was on TV everywhere. And they brought them up in this tube that was made in Canada, by the way, um, from the depth. And what I noticed is that when they came up, like this guy, they just fell in thankfulness. And nobody complained about the situation at the time. In fact, the president of uh, Chile was embracing them. And I was thinking... Uh, of that great cause, by your mercy, free we are. The sad thing about human nature, it didn't take long for some of them to start suing the, <laughs> the government and the mine and everything else, but that was a moment where they were so grateful that grumbling disappeared. Now, we have to finish quickly. One of the things I should have read in your book about being on time, Malcolm, but uh, verse 15, because it gets into this very quickly. Um... Well, he begins to talk about the blessings that come from not complaining and arguing. And he said, look, if you don't complain, you don't argue, but you live like I'm calling you to live, what you'll be seen as is 
is like stars in a crooked and depraved and dark world. Isn't it wonderful that we in this dark world can be like, we can shine like stars who hold out the word of life. I think it's a wonderful verse. Holding out. And the word used for holding out, it's a word that can mean speak out or hold on to. And I thought, what should I tell him? Is this speaking out or is it holding on to? Well, in reality, we need to do both. We need to hold out the word of life in outreach of all kinds. I hope you'll be innovative in your outreach. We've seen great blessing in our assembly. We've seen people saved for the first time in years. But it's just because of more innovative outreach, working in the local school, uh, having a block party for the neighborhood, having the kids for the community in a community choir and having a concert for the parents. We're doing all, letting the school use the chapel as an auditorium for commencement. We started kind of changing our style and, and I'm thinking that it's part of that. It's holding out the word of life, proclaiming the word, but, but being innovative. Uh, uh, because we've got to be like shining stars that, that guide the lost in the darkness. And Paul talks about that. And of course, it's just what Jesus told us to do. He said, look, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine before everyone. Don't hide it. So to what? And this is exactly the same as Philippians 2. They may see what? Your good works and praise your Father in heaven. So we need to hold out the word. And we have the effort to hold it out, but you need to hold on to it too. And we've talked about that already today. But let me emphasize the importance. We must be sure that the next generation receives the word. We hold on to it. It's the word of God that's our foundation. We hold on to it so we have something to hold out. Hold out to our children and grandchildren. Let me remind you what I said this morning. One generation from extinction. I showed you this morning a, a little movie clip, Dropping the Baton. Wasn't it sad that race was lost? I want to show you another example that was a little bit more successful. Let's get this. Watch these guys. Man, you'll see this guy is running, he's running, he's got the baton, and it's cleanly passed. And the guy, he's going to win the race. He's running until he's finished because he's got it. The baton is passed. That's the message. It's a message Paul elaborated in Second Timothy. We have to run the race to the end, but it's passing the gospel on that matters. So I just want to balance that fluff this morning with that successful passing of the band. And then the chapter, which I won't have time to do now, gets real practical. It talks about Timothy. I'm going to flash through this because I see that it's almost time. But it begins to talk about practical examples. Talk about the practicality of Scripture. He talks about Timothy, always ready to travel and help Paul. He was the one Paul passed the baton to, rid Second Timothy. At the end of his life, Paul said, take it, Timothy. And here he is, earlier on saying, I've no one like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. And he talks about Timothy proving himself how by serving in the work of the gospel. In fact, he said he slaved with me in the work of the gospel. No wonder Paul said, hey, the baton's going to Timothy. He's the guy that can take it up. And some of you young guys, you're going to be the guys. Even Malcolm's not immortal. And the baton's got to go. And you've got to go. You've got to be like the Timothys. Proving yourself. Serving now in the work of the gospel. And Epaphroditus, man, 
Here's a guy that God didn't heal miraculously. Paul probably prayed for him. He was sick. He had to be healed slowly and naturally. It's a little lesson in divine healing, I suppose. But he, he says, look, honor men like this. He's a brother, he's a worker, he's a soldier, he's a messenger. What names he gave to Epaphroditus. But what's interesting about the scripture is Epaphroditus showed his concern for others in a practical and interesting way. You think, boy, he must have been some brother. Listen, you know what upset Epaphroditus in verse 26? He was distressed because he heard, you heard he was ill. He was, what? don't worry. He was worried that they'd be worried if they heard he was sick. He's so concerned about them. I'm not like that. When I'm sick, I say to them, I think I'm dying. I've got a cold. Hasn't, hasn't anyone been to see me? Don't they know I'm ill? You can't tell them all. I, I need prayer. I've got flu. <laughs> I'm a terrible patient. No, Paul wasn't, uh, Epaphroditus wasn't like that. He wasn't, you didn't need to get the book on. You need to know about people who talk about their illnesses. <laughs> Epaphroditus, hey, he almost died for the work of Christ. Risking his life. He risked his life to make up for the help you couldn't give me. What a guy. Oh, you guys, if only you could be a Epaphroditus, worried what people would think. Not about your reputation, but they wouldn't worry. Risking your life for the gospel. What this chapter finishes with a practical call. Now, when did you last take a risk for Christ? That's the lesson, that's the challenge. We have to understand that Philippians 2 is about our attitude, it's about Christ's agony and the claim and all that we've said, but in the end it's about our actions to go to it, to be Timothy's, Epaphroditus's, taking the baton. God help us to do it for his glory. One thing preachers shouldn't do is preach over time. I apologize. Again, they shouldn't apologize. <laughs> How all the mistakes are mounting up. But God bless you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to follow it, we pray. And now to him that is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So we'll see you on the 16th. Don't forget to practice what I'm preaching. Hey, and there might be a quiz when I come back to see if you can remember. God bless you.